Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Carly Dover and we would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, upon whose land we are broadcasting here at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row in Sydney. On the Climate Action Show, we talk about what's hot and what's not with climate change. Please share the show if you like what you hear, and remember there can be no climate justice without First Nations justice. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Climate Action Show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, hosted around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Make sure to share the show if you like what you hear. My name is Carly and my guests today are Kemi Cordner-Hunt and Adrian Whitehead, who are candidates from Fusion Party Australia. Fusion are a merger of the Science Party, Pirate Party, Secular Party, Vote Planet and Climate Change Justice Party. Hi, Cammy and Adrian. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having us, Carly. Hi, thanks. No worries. So, Cammy and Adrian, can you tell the listeners a bit about yourselves and then we'll jump into a bit of a Fusion Party explainer? I've been an environmental activist since my uni days and I remember... About 30 years ago, we were, especially in Victoria, we were really kicking massive goals with um, environmental education and environmental awareness and people were doing all sorts of things to reduce um, waste in their households. And and then all the the political will just dribbled out of it and we've been told to be measured and calm and rational uh, because no one will listen to us unless we take it, talk about it from the economic angle. Uh, and I've realised that over 30 years, that's them, te- them, them in inverted commas, telling us to do that was how they actually hobbled us and made our voices um, in- inadequate. So that's why I'm coming back into, um, into this arena, because I'd like to get to the, where the policies are made and um, take it from there. Yeah, and um, my yeah, it's Adrian here, and uh, my background's in environmental activism. So I, I got into it from about the age of sixteen. I started volunteering for the Conservation Council in Melbourne, and uh, which is now Environment Victoria, and then jumped into forest campaigning and on the front line in eighteen at eighteen nineteen years old. Uh, got arrested, uh, ran a couple of major campaigns. So helped win the Otway National Park campaign got beaten unconscious by a logger in that one with an axe handle, so it almost killed me, so it was a bit bit exciting at the time. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it was nasty, actually. And um, then worked in, stopped the Nace Valley Dam being built uh, when I was employed in the Conservation Council up in Canberra and got into climate change campaigning in 2003, uh, focusing on supporting wind farms because back in 2003, even... Australian Conservation Foundation was opposing wind farms uh, down at Bald Hills um, in in Gippsland. And it was pretty crazy, and it's still pretty crazy today, that we're, you know, almost, almost, wow, 20 years later, that we're we're not actually solving solving climate change yet. So I've I've been in the past a Green and and run lots of times for the Greens, and I've set up a, a... climate party called save the planet and we merged with cammy's party who was called one planet become vote planet <laughs> but um you might be aware scott morrison got together with labor the nationals and one nation and 
retrospectively deregistered all the micro parties and we had to combine. So we joined forces with a whole lot of sort of progressives and you mentioned them all before, science, secular, pirates and another climate party called Climate Justice Party based out of Canberra. So to form fusion and we're all working away together to get a really strong climate voice in this current election. Thanks for your, um, both of your backgrounds. I didn't actually know that they worked together to deregister all the minor parties. When did this happen? And if you can tell us a bit about fusion anyway, I know there's a merger, but what is, what is the spirit of this party? That's a really uh, great question because uh, one of the first things I have found joining with science, pirate uh, and secular is the incredible energy um, technical skills uh, and fantastic new perspectives on all of our policies and we've been able to work together and bring together an incredible suite of policies which we all um, stand for and um, interestingly enough for example when we came to the table with our climate emergency policy some of the other parties um, were kind of like oh do we need to go that hard but actually over the months of working together they've all fully, fully come on board with our climate emergency goals, uh, action goals. And um, so, and that's how we've all come together. It's been an incredibly positive experience. And I, I feel that with us all coming together in this way, we, we do actually represent a lot of views um, for voters. Yeah, and it's the, the, initial, uh, the initial attack on the micro parties was, I think it was around May last year. And that from memory, they passed a new legislation in, in Parliament. We knew it was coming for a while. And uh, it, it's part of an ongoing process, actually. When I first ran uh, for federal election as, a, as an independent or for Save the Planet, uh, um, I think it was about $300 to run for a low house seat. That then went to 500 Then it got doubled to 1000 Now it's $2,000. So that, that's been a separate attack on micro parties and small parties running at the elections because... Although everyone pays that $2,000 up front, all the major parties, the Greens, all the big parties anyway, get that money back because they get above 4%. And it's only the micro parties that effectively have to pay it. So um, so they, they've been doing that, raising the price, and then they retrospectively tripled the membership requirements for all the registered parties. So we'd put a lot of... And it's actually hard to get 500 people. Now it's 1,500. Um, it's actually really hard to get people to sign up, uh, harder than you think it might be. And uh, but we combined all our memberships and we got through the process as a basically an alliance of uh, progressive uh, left left leaning parties with a sort of future focus and a lot of shared values around um, just making a better world for everyone, stopping the corruption in, in government and acting on climate, just to name a few of the things. For um, listeners at home, I had no idea who Fusion Wall were until two weeks ago. I filled out my early voting because I won't be around and I saw Fusion Party and I thought that's a cool logo. They've got climate on there. Who, who are these cats? And then I started reading the policy and I thought, oh, wow, this sounds very, very exciting. So I wonder if you could both tell listeners a bit about the policies and the values more. I've been really thrilled to find that everyone <clears throat> in this fusion of um, parties and is 100% committed to changing the status quo. And also uh, we've all learned so much from each other about how that can actually happen. And um, we can, um, 
Yeah, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll let Adrian take over for a moment. Well, yeah, yeah. So, look, the, the Fusion Party policies are, are focused on 10 key areas. Uh, the climate emergency, there's a future focus around building, um, you know, things that you know excite people looking into the future, like high-speed rail, um, you know, moving, you know, this is our science party sort of focus from them. Um, education for life, uh, ethical governance, that's about ending corruption, a fair and inclusive society and individual freedoms and ecological restoration. So they're sort of our 10 key pillars that we all put together. Around climate change, I think one of the key things that differentiates us from most other parties is that we start talking about, or we're talking about reversing global warming, we're talking about negative emissions. Because if anyone, I'm sure you guys understand, most of the listeners will understand, if we're, if we're going to stop the events that we're seeing today, such as the really huge fires at the start of COVID, we're seeing towns like Lismore flood in two one-in-a-thousand-year events a few weeks apart. If we're going to stop that, that means reversing global warming. It means cooling the planet. It means stopping what we're not only stopping what we're doing, which is sort of getting to zero, but actually going backwards. So we talk about negative emissions and across the entire economics uh, sphere as well. So it's not just about energy, not just about transport. It also includes a focus on forestry, also includes the focus on soils, but rebuilding all that soil carbon that we've lost. And it also means dealing with the really large emissions that come out of our agricultural sector, particularly uh, associated with methane coming from manure management, plus just the um, fermentation of food in, in the guts of cows and sheep, for example, which are really quite huge. So they're just, that's a really quick overview and happy to go into more detail if you like. And actually, just going on from there, the, the solutions have actually all been proposed and put together. I mean, Beyond Zero Emissions has a fantastic strategy for our way out of this. Saul Griffith's recent publication, The Big Switch and Electrifying Everything in Australia. And there's other just genius initiatives coming up from all over the world. And the only thing, the only reason we're not picking up is not because they're not going to work. It's because everyone, uh, there is this, this movement to stop them actually being um, being enacted and that's where we need more people like fusion people in parliament to try and pressure the political will to actually make that change that's right and i think talking about the policies and really pushing for very 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 um really really strong policies i mean i read you you know in the theme of wanting to draw down carbon and cool down the planet a goal of 800 percent renewables or clean energy Amazing. And why is this so radical? But please talk to me more about, you know, the intricacies of the policies, because I think they're really exciting. Yeah, well, I mean, just on renewable energy, it's the idea of putting an 800% figure on renewable energy is just setting us up for renewable energy exports. So whether it's through hydrogen or some other means, um, we've got a massive abundance of opportunities, particularly around solar, particularly in the, the drier parts of Australia, which is the majority of Australia to build renewable-based uh, economic systems around our renewable energy to create things like hydrogen that we could potentially export into the, into the global market. And it just, just makes sense. One of the problems we had, you know, the, the final argument to maintain our coal-based uh, power systems and our gas-based power systems was something called spinning reserve, which is the large generators spinning round and round and round effectively stabilising the grid. But since the type of batteries grid, 
grid grid support batteries that have come along like the one that Elon Musk put in South Australia, the need for that has absolutely disappeared. And we can do our entire grid now on 100% renewable energy. And we can go beyond that and produce more energy that we need that we can actually invest in things such as, you know, energy export, or we can invest it in materials export because every time someone ships a product overseas, it's actually bringing with it a burden. It's bringing with it a burden of energy, labor, industrial resources, pollution, etc. So, you know, we can use our clean manufacturing and renewable energy to actually build an entire industry around green tech. And, and the jobs question is a good one because um, it's interesting that um, the, the current government is actually obstructing transition to fossil fuels and uh, our fossil fuel economy is actually a moribund economy and yet they're, they're talking up jobs, 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 jobs and everything, but actually the jobs very soon will be in re the renewable power uh, economy. So, and one of the ironic things is in 2019, Scott, Scott Morrison said, oh, the electric car will kill the weekend. And uh, now it's the petrol prices that are going to kill the weekend and electric vehicles are incredibly cheap to travel in. So, I mean, the fact that this has been a huge transition in, in three years, uh, despite the obstacles, just goes to show how quickly the transition can be made. It's ready to be made. It's It's going to work well and everyone will benefit. And I think, I think one of the things that you can see in the Beyond Zero Emissions report, and incidentally, I was one of the co-founders, one of the two co-founders of Beyond Zero Emissions back in the day. But the, the, the one thing that the entire conversion of our economy to a climate safe economy actually requires is a lot of jobs. So it's, it's never been an argument, uh, only through direct lies, it's never been an argument about lack of employment opportunities in our transition to a, a safe economy or a um, restorative economy, the actual problem will be enough skilled people to do all the jobs. So, you know, we'd probably have to rebuild the TAFE sector that's been, you know, privatised and wound down and sort of simplified over the years. And so it's, it's that sort of thing. It's never going to be an issue about a lack of jobs. The issue will be not enough people. And, you know, the problem with us is it's, I think, too much of the, not, not the problem with us, problem with the framing of climate change responses is it's still framed largely almost as a business as usual type response. So it's about, it's about sort of jobs and economic opportunity and, you know, sort of just transition. And all of that's really important. But when you get down to it, if as, you know, in some cases, what was it, 25% of houses and some some electorates are going to be uninsurable due to flood risk, I think, you know, in by 2030, if it's if you understand that a town like Lismore is effectively gone, even though it's still standing there, and is a, a climate casualty, if you understand that it is in fact an emergency, it does frame slightly differently how you're going to focus. Now, at the same time, you can deal with the emergency and create all those opportunities around uh, climate justice and job opportunities and re reworking different sectors. And if we are going to do drawdown, there's even jobs in the mining industry, for example. So, you know, there's the potential to look at some of the drawdown options, including, you know, digging up a, a particular type of basalt that traps CO2 and you can spread that basalt on farmland, for example, 
and it acts as a, a slow release fertilizer over time. So it's good farms, good for climate, good for miners. And instead of mining coal, they can be mining something else. So, you know, not necessarily good for the uh, remnant bushland on top of the mine, but hey, it's, um, you know, nothing's particularly always perfect. Actually, and speaking of farming, I come from a regional area and we actually have a candidate in Nichols, which is the Shepparton Greater Goulburn Valley. And that's been, Nichols has been recognised as one of the areas most uh, at risk of suffering from floods um, and other climate um, related events. And um, the other thing is um, our policies will, will hopefully, well, you know, hopefully we can get enough change fast enough because areas of Victoria are going to be uninsurable and this is a whole new world for that people are entering into where they're investing their life's work into property and that property is not going to be insurable. So, so that's going to have a devastating effect, I believe, on real estate values everywhere. Um, and you, there's actually a, an interactive map. There's a website that was just launched very recently. I, I received news of it this morning. You can go onto an interactive map of Australia and click on your own town and you can see what the ins future insurability of your property will be uh, by 2100. And there are, there are places in Australia where uh, they're quite heavily populated where insurability in 2100 is 100% non-insurable. I actually went on that this morning as well. Sorry, Adrian. And, you know, going, looking around at the map before you even populate your, in, your own suburb or municipalities, I, the Australian public broadly do not actually understand the situation. I feel that the media and politicians are trying to still um, placate and have, as Adrian said, business as usual, and it's just not the case. Sorry, that was just my thoughts. Actually, no, no. well, yeah. I'm glad you raised media um, because they, they do have a huge role to play in this because um, they pretend that everyone can make up their own mind, but they're, they're working, uh, paddling very, very hard to make up everyone's minds for them. Um, and just the other day, I watched the Greta Thunberg speech when she was 15, um, a TED talk, um, and a 15-year-old child in 2018 said, I don't understand why people why this isn't all over the news every single day and people aren't talking about anything else. And I just thought, wow, it's four years since she said that. And just like the film Don't Look Up, uh, the, the media has con continued to construct a world that we're living in where none of this is happening. Yeah, and it's, it's the, the media problem, as we know, is one of the, the big problems that we've got to drive through and it's associated with in, in general and one of the things that's quite interesting about fusion is that every single party in fusion uh has a really really strong commitment to dealing with the corruption of our political system and so it's a combination of the sort of specific stuff we talked about earlier where they're just raising the price of partaking in our political um system for for the if you're not backed by a, a major party or a corporation or a big union and down to you know, who controls the media and it's been a, a problem for decades. And I, I remember being a, um, a young student in German class in year seven and we were, we were for some reason, our teacher told us about the German media laws and I, and I said, oh, why, why are they so strong? Like it's really, you know, you can't, can't own this and you can't own that and it's really quite, you know, very, very limited at the time around 
how much media any single person or, or business could own. And he said, oh, that's so the, the, the West decided they didn't want to see fascism rise in Germany again. And I said, well, why don't we have these rules for ourselves if that's the case? And, you know, it's the, it was the obvious unanswered question, which is, you know, instead of fascism, we've got a sort of corp corptocracy, which is that very hard word to say about, you know, control of our nation's agenda by the corp, you know, the corporate elites. And it's, you know, we're sort of stuck in this terrible loop. Um, I just just wanted to get back to the housing thing around insurance just quickly is the the second part of that issue about and I'm sure and people did mention it who had been interviewed in in those floods up in northern New South Wales in, in Lismore and such it's not just the insurability of your house is the value of your house so uh, we're not far away I gave a, a, a presentation on the climate emergency to Sunshine Coast Council last year and the speaker who spoke after me was explaining how banks are now looking at coastal inundation areas and are basically just a few years away of saying that they cannot lend against this house because this house has ultimately no future value. So people who've invested, as Cami was saying, you know, their life savings or their life's work effectively into a house may no longer be able to borrow against it to move and the house will effectively have, you know, the value of you know a sort of short-term rental value that you could potentially get until the next flood or event and this this will be catastrophic just as the current floods are catastrophic for people who have actually had their homes destroyed and inundated and and can't get insurance this this is another factor that's going to lead into it uh another 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 one of the unrolling of the climate impacts across our society yeah climate refugees in our own backyard and I think that it is still a surprise to many Australians who are unaware that from the 2019 bushfires, there are still people who are still sleeping in tents and living, living rough, you know, and I, I can anticipate that the same thing will befall a lot of the poor Lismore residents and Northern Rivers, people who fled those floods. It's just not good enough. And I think you make a very important point about um, housing in general and housing security because we already have a, a homelessness problem where so many people in such a rich and abundant society have just been left behind. So what will happen in 10 years' time as disasters continue to increase? Another interesting aspect of these policies and what Fusion stands for is, um, is, is, for, is youth and where the youth is uh, <clears throat> thinking and, where, and how they're looking ahead to their future. <clears throat> I attended a uh, candidate forum in Nichols last week where our candidate Andrea Otto was uh, presenting. And um, the last question of the evening, and it was held at the La Trobe campus there. So that was a, it was quite a young audience, all um, sort of early to mid twenties. And the last <clears throat> question for, from the e for the evening was, you know, um, so what's good about the future for the for the young people of Nichols? Uh, can we give them hope? And uh, all of the middle-aged white men who was what all the other candidates were, other than our um, lady, all said, you know, we're going to go on with, we're going to keep growing, Chevron will keep growing, we're going to keep going with jobs, we're going to, um, and you guys, you've got nothing to worry about, we're looking after you. Don't worry, just keep doing what uh, basically what we tell you to do and you're going to be okay. And the, the fusion candidate, Andrea, Andrea, said something to the point of, actually, I don't know that um, 
hearing it from you that everything's going to be okay is actually what they want to hear. And she said, I think we really need to listen actually to them, what, what it is that they they are worried about and what they want us to fix. You know, if we're the political class, what are we going to be actually doing for them?
joining us on today's climate action show just for people who might be tuning in we've been talking to cammy and adrian from fusion party australia i've got a question then um yeah thank you for speaking to that cammy i do think that um for young people it is getting disproportionately harder and harder and harder to set themselves up for society and that old trope that you know you work hard you you know follow the rules you'll you'll be okay it's just certainly not the case so thank you for speaking to that um, I wanted to circle back to the point we were talking about before about corruption, and I wondered in particular what were the mechanisms or what were the policy, what was what were the policy particulars from Fusion to um, approach that. Well, we'll definitely support the Helen Haynes Integrity Bill. Um, it's it's a good model. In fact, that that would be the minimum standard of of integrity commission that we would be. Uh, supporting. Uh, we, if we get into Parliament, we will actually look to see if we can make it even stronger. Uh, I think everybody wants this. I've actually been receiving a deluge of emails from um, constituents wanting uh, firmer action on all of this and on transparency, on accountability. Um, and I think that um, I, I can't believe that at some point in our history, uh, someone decided that politicians were the most honourable people in Australia and therefore we needed absolutely no laws governing their conduct. And, and that's still the case. <clears throat> and I think, look, maybe there was an a time many years ago when politicians did see their role as one of great honour and honourability. But uh, I get the feeling now that they're all just, they all know they can get away with a lot of things and they're all seeing how much they can get away with. Yeah, I mean, just the, the current, you know, just a, a week or so ago, 
at before the election or as the election was getting called the you know, for example, the energy minister decided to tear up the contracts our government had for carbon offsets and basically allow, uh, which were contracted quite cheaply for, I don't know, $12 a, a ton or something, and they were able to sell them for sort of four or five times as much on the open market, ultimately, potentially, depending on the system that we use to, to remove uh, CO2 from the atmosphere, perhaps the, you know, under Labor or Liberal anyway, the taxpayers are going to have to buy them back at a hugely inflated price. So it's literally handing over billions of dollars worth of money into like the, the, the profit of private corporations and then forcing the tax pay tax. And we saw that all through COVID and it's, it's just a, it's the, it's the blatant level of the sort of open leaf, the open corruption that really disturbs me at the moment. It's just, you know, the, the classic being Harvey Norman getting all of his, you know, money through the, the COVID response and, and, and the government just saying that's okay. And it's, and it's sad. (laughs) It's really sad. So I think, I think on the broader issue that the idea behind, you know, what's exciting me about the fusion project is that we've managed to bring a whole bunch of people who have quite, quite similar, similar sort of values, but different agendas altogether um, pirate, secular, and and science, and and the three climate emergency parties that are a part of it as well, and and work in a cooperative way, and and that sits along other uh, alongside other new parties like Reason and Australian Progressives, and a whole bunch of people who are looking to change the system because we've got a system that is a two party system, whether we like it or not, and it's time to break, and and the Teal movement. And all this sort of stuff is happening and just hopefully we can get a critical mass of people to understand that they can use their preferences to vote. So you can vote for someone like Fusion and then swing it to the next, you know, next micro party of your choice and the next one and the next one. You can go all the way down, get exhaust all the progressive micro parties of, of which there's about sort of 10 to 12, depending on your thinking and then pick the Greens or then pick Labor and then put all the, put all the uh, not-so-nice parties or the more conservative parties or the more centrist or centrist-right parties below them, you know. So you can use those preference systems, which is something that seems that people don't, are starting to understand, which is great, you know, which is great, but I wish more people could. But I'd like to jump in there and talk about the Senate vote. Um, the Senate vote is extremely opaque. Most people actually are barely aware that they're going to be voting on a Senate ballot paper. They're all, everyone's, the media has been just churning and churning and churning and churning through the uh, contest and the personality playoffs within their um, lower house seat, their House of Representatives. And then when they get into the polling booth, they're given the little green paper for voting for their lower house representative. And then they're given a metre of white paper and says, and this is your Senate vote. And there's a mind boggling um, 28 columns of possibilities and under each uh, in each column there's also several individuals so up to you know 75 or so people and no one has prepared those people for what they're supposed to do with those 75 individuals on a meter of paper so and and i think this is a, a, a bit of a um silent conspiracy where both major parties benefit from the fact that people are completely bamboozled and think, and, and actually quite often they go, oh, well, you know, it's like a teacher asking you a question you can't possibly answer. So you go, well, stuff it, I'm not going to do it. Um, or should I say bother it, I'm not going to do it. And um, 
so I, I feel that that happens to a lot of people in the polling booth. They go, oh, you know, I can't be expected to do this. Now, previously with one above the line, that was all you had to do with that whole measure of paper was the one above the line in your, the party of your choice. But that was leading to secret preference deals because parties had to register what they wanted the AEC to do with their number one above their line, where they wanted all of those things to go. People, so that became news that there were these secret preferences going on uh, that none of us knew about. It was that they were registered with the AEC and we wouldn't even know how to find them out. So uh, they changed it to six above the line or 12 or more below the line. And that seems to have fixed the situation. There's now a fantastic potential for people to actually really vote for change in the Senate. And I, but I think the best way to do that is do, as Adrian just said, just number small parties, progressive parties, interesting parties. Uh, might need to do a bit of your research because <laughs> um, some of them may be uh, not, not what you want. And that's the trouble, you know, people look at these groups of people, look at these names of parties and go, well, how do I know who they are and what they stand for? Luckily, everyone can take a phone into a phone into the polling booth with them now and do a bit of research on the run. But even so, um, I really feel that there should be more publicity and education about the Senate vote as well, more awareness, because people, we all owe it to our democracy to actually be more prepared for that one metre long piece of paper. And when you get it, put one fusion. <laughs> I'm really glad you did touch on the educational perspective because, you know, in different pockets of society, you know, I, you know, in my own family, sometimes you do tend to hear the same kind of thing. Oh, they're all the same. They're all the same. It doesn't really matter who you vote for. They're all the same. And I think that a lot of parties do bank on that apathy. You know, you know us. You may as well just stick with us because, you know, better the devil know the devil that you know than the devil you yeah. know. <laughs> so I, I am glad that you touched on the educative perspective because I do agree. I think it should be lifelong and not just, you know, a, a class or two in primary and then high school. And then if you're lucky to go to university or TAFE and if you tend to, you know, do a degree that covers that, a bit of that. So thank you for that. I wonder how has campaigning been like? Have you what a fusion party been up to? Where have you been going? What what does that look like? It's slowly building momentum at the moment. We're getting um, fantastic opportunities. Thank you so much, Carly, for this one. Um, but generally speaking, uh, we are under the radar, aren't we, Adrian? Uh, but but people who are doing their own research, so to speak, um, have found us, like you have, Carly. Thank you. And uh, it's actually surprising how much positive feedback now I get when I say I'm from Fusion. People go, oh, yeah, I've heard of them. So, so we're, we're a bit of the dark horse coming from behind, and um, but but even so, it's 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 a challenge because there's there's just a huge amount of narrative in the public space about um, about the main characters, the celebrity politicians, the uh, and things like that. So it, it is hard to to crack that visibility. Yeah, look, I, I did a, a climate candidates forum in Cooper, which is in the sort of roughly corresponds to Darabin. Yeah. Did you, were you there? Did you go? Yeah, I live in that area. Yeah. <laughs> you live in that area. Okay. So yeah. So I did, I did the climate, uh, the climate candidate forum. So that had, uh, it had myself, it had the Greens, it had Celeste from the Greens, it had Jed Carney from Labor, it had AJP, Animal Justice Party, and the Victorian Socialists. So pretty much the progressive side of the, the thing. But sadly, they picked a really tiny venue and they booked out. So it was only 
um, there wasn't a huge number of people there. Whereas in the past, they, I think I remember one in Northcote Town Hall at some point where it was, you know, a couple of hundred people were inside and that was fantastic. Um, other than that, it's just about, you know, putting the core flutes up. So if anyone wants to uh, put a core flute up in Cooper, feel free to come and contact me. Um, uh, for, for, for me, the messaging is around the climate emergency. That, that's my background. I've come from originally set up Save the Planet, and which is a political party back in 2012, focus on, or 2012, 2013, focus on the climate emergency. Then we combined with One Planet, which is Cami's party to form Vote Planet. And then we had to merge again uh, to form Fusion. But to me, it's about getting that climate emergency messaging out there because in my seat, it's fought over Greens and Labor and the, the sitting Labor candidate, it's a real opportunity to the more that we push to climate emergency, the more it gives her space uh, to act strongly within the Labor Party and act as a counter voice to those Labor members that are backing the coal industry or the gas industry or the forestry industry, et cetera. So it's it's an important seat, but it's hard fought over and they're spending, both parties are spending lots of money. So as a, as a minor party with not much money, it's hard to cut into that space, but still important to do as much as you can. And Carly, I'd like to touch on the inequity in campaigning that, that has become the situation in Australia. Uh, yeah, look, the, um, you know, campaigning now is all about how much money you have, because if you have uh, an enormous amount of money and can flood the airwaves with your message, uh, then, then that, that's part of the narrative that's influencing people's thought. And... So, I mean, in a really ideal democracy, that actually wouldn't be the case. And, and I, I must say that, you know, decades ago, we used to look across at America and think that their presidential elections that were just all the hoopla and whizzes and bells and festivals were such an appalling way to select your leader. And, and we've actually just been gravitating that way over the last few decades, uh, where it is becoming all about m money uh, in order to get into parliament. Um, and so uh, definitely a need for campaign donations reform there. And um, there was one more thing I wanted to say, so a little break there while Adrian... Well, people, are, I mean, people are spending $250,000 plus to, to win winnable seats. So I'm sure that's probably what Labor Party's spending, something like that here. I'm not sure what the Greens would be spending. Um, there, there's a long way in Cooper between the Greens and Labor. It's 14%, which makes it a very safe Labor seat, actually. So the Greens have got to claw back that difference. Um, so it's just, it is it is to a large degree, or it, it can be a large degree about money. And you can see the one reason we registered our Vote Planet Party a couple of years ago was we'd wanted to be campaigning from June, we'd planned to all be campaigning from June last year and going door to door and, you know, doing the thing that money can't buy, making that personal connection. And then they retrospectively, uh, you know, removed us as a, as a registered party. So, you know, a year's worth of effort or 11 months worth of effort went into fusing fusion together and uh, we lost that time. And so anyway, we've got the state election coming up next. So hopefully we can get that momentum going from, you know, uh, the, the situation, you know, the campaigning on the federal to campaigning on state and state, we've got a Labor government that's out there, you know, drilling for gas in the Otway Basin and destroying and propping up a, a, a native forest destruction industry that would have died if they hadn't invested state state taxpayer dollars into propping the whole thing up. So, and in, in 20, 
22 it's literally insane to be continuing to promote we promote co2 releasing strategies such as destroying our native forest and and we had that good news in tassie that just came out today that tassie's now because they've cut back on their logging they've cut back on their forest destruction their clear felling they're now a net carbon sink and that's what has to be the entire world because we don't stop global warming until we actually cool the planet that while we're still putting co2 up there while we're still putting methane up there we're going to get hotter and hotter and hotter and it gets worse and worse and worse so yeah there's a pathway out of this and we're we're here to promote that and make it happen and Kali, I would actually just like to address the notion of a hung parliament because uh, the, all of these um, new independents and new small parties and, and everyone actually wanting to move away from the major parties means that we could end up where one of the major parties actually doesn't have an absolute majority and can't take government without actually doing something about it. And I have to say there's been so much fear-mongering on the majority Australian narrative in the media um, and it's really not fearsome. We actually need a hung parliament to actually make change. And that's what the major parties um, and our mainstream media are terrified of. For some reason, they do not want change. They want to keep going with the same old, same old. But a hung parliament is the best way that we can make change. So don't be dissuaded out there, you listeners, from uh, investing your votes in small parties and in independence because our constitution actually doesn't even mention the word political party. The, the, there, there is no requirement for a political party for our government to run and execute its obligations to our constitution. That, that simply doesn't exist. However, parties did become a, a convenient way for everyone in the far-flung corners of Australia to understand who someone stood for. Um, and that has become, that has tend to overtaken the system of governance by, by assuming those powers in numbers. Uh, but it's not a prerequisite of our democracy or of our parliament that a major party has government, not at all. That's right. And I guess a hung parliament oh, doesn't keep the status quo. And I guess, you know, people are fearful of change. What does that mean for, you know, the media who haven't really been holding anyone or any industry to account I guess I'd like to know what is, you know, Cammy and Adrian, what are you, what are your ideal future Australia? What, what, what does that look like for you? Um, I'll kick off. So for me, it's sometime in the next couple of years, we start a Australian wide emergency response to re reverse global warming. And, and that means going for a true zero across every sector of the Australian economy. And, and then drawing down as much emissions as possible. So it's, and I think it represents a, a wonderful opportunity of both changing the way we do things from a sort of competitive us versus us type type system that I think, you know, I really got the vibe from the Howard years, Howard sort of injected that sort of competition, turning people against people into, a, into an Australia where we're actually working together for, you know, one of a better word, our commonwealth, which is something that we're all meant to be a part of. So, um, and yeah, and I, I, and we've got to do it soon because if we don't do it soon, what will happen is we'll end up with a, a climate crisis that's resulting in huge financial, personal loss of lives and eventually will result in a global food crisis, which will be catastrophic. 
beyond belief. So, yeah, that that that's my ideal Australia. Yeah, I, I agree with Adrian. So ever since the sort of late 80s, early 90s, we've been drifting into a sort of neoliberal paradigm. And that, that neoliberal paradigm um, celebrates self-interest and it, it's made self-interest the major driving force of... Um, of economies and uh, interactions with other people, and uh, and and self-interest is now the new um, integrity and honour. If you're not being self-interested, then you're actually failing the neoliberal paradigm. Uh, so my future Australia would be where, in getting our hung parliament with independents and small parties in, we can actually move away from the from how much we're really really engaged into that. Um, economic paradigm and peg back to, to a Keynesian um, economic paradigm. So after the Second World War, all of Europe and all of the Western world really needed to rebuild, work together and rebuild, and they used the Keynesian um, economy system, but and that, was, that had a lot of social respons responsibility tied into it. So speaking for myself, I grew up in Australia, which was a really, really nicely balanced blend of capitalism with social responsibility. It's, and, you know, it was a happy place and we grew and we did everything that uh, everyone feels we need to. So it's, it's not very hard to envisage that we can return to that paradigm which served everybody. It sounds very exciting. I certainly feel very hopeful when I talk to you too. So thank you for indulging me in that question is there anything that I haven't asked that you'd like to speak to before the show clocks off for this week um I look I just wanted to to highlight one issue that you know I've been I've been running zero emissions reverse global warming since 2003 and we're not and by zero zero emissions now not zero emissions in 2050 or anything like that zero emissions now I think people listening to this show have really got to understand, or I think it's a good idea to understand anyway, that framing of the, you need to frame the solution as the solution is. So it's economy-wide, it's negative emissions as soon as possible, it's managing solar reflection. Because if we, if we don't manage that, we're going to end up with losing the Great Barrier Reef, losing low-lying um, Pacific Islands, losing Bangladesh and it's catastrophic and probably you know with without that sulfur that's being produced by the CO2 the carbon producing coal plants at the moment we're actually already above two degrees that one degrees has been reflected back out into into space from the sulfur so we need to just be honest about what we do because every time people talk about net zero uh, by 2050, for example, or, you know, net zero being the answer, whether it's 2030 or 2035, we're actually not saying the solutions. And it reinforces it into the general members of the public that that's an okay thing. So I think we just need to get out there and talk about what the actual solutions are. And it's net negative, it's really large, and it's about reversing global warming and cooling the planet. Yes, another thing I wanted to say is that I think we've reached the end of uh the system where nature is a commodifiable resource that 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 the answer to growth and jobs, growth and jobs being all about just gouging out um, the earth and uh, ignoring the costs and consequences, mowing down trees, um, 
damming up water and, and doing whatever you do with water. Uh, and that actually just obviously cannot continue. That um, So if we do move in, into a more sort of socially responsible, less self-interest-oriented um, economy, then we can start treating nature as something that actually uh, contributes in other ways other than just as a resource, as a, as a cash cow, uh, because it's not sustainable to keep treating it as a cash cow and it is absolutely responsible for our health and our food <clears throat> and our future. So <clears throat> that's another thing that fusion uh, candidates have as a vision for the future of Australia and for the future of young people. Thank you so much. I certainly am. Um, I also like between being very excited and hopeful to feeling very gloomy and doomy about um, what happens come May 21. But again, I'd like to thank Adrian and you, Cami, for coming to speak to me and the listeners. I think that there are going to be a lot of people who are very excited to hear about you. So once again, we've been speaking to Cami Cordner-Hunt and Adrian Whitehead, who are both candidates from Fusion Party Australia. Thank you so much for joining us, Cammie and Adrian. Thank you so much, Carly. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show today. We hope that you join us next week. 